as you make your way back to your seats. I will wait patiently. Good morning, church. It's a blessing to be here today. I'll, uh, I'm thinking about this, so I'm just going to share it with you all. Um, I had a double blessing this week um, that's, you know, totally my fault, but um, blessed regardless. Um, we have, a, obviously, a spreadsheet that we use to organize who's preaching what weeks, and I thought for the last, like, three weeks that I was preaching John 7, 1 through verse 42, and, um, and so I studied and prepared to that end, and then on Wednesday, found out that, um, I don't know if it's dys- dyslexia or whatever, but I, it was 1 through 24. So, as you all know, um, that's because you've been reading in the Abide card, that's what we're at today. So, John 7, 1 through 24, I was blessed to prepare two messages for one Sunday. So, um, <laughs> but I'm only going to preach one of them, so um, that might relieve some of you. Uh, John 7, 1 through 24, before we get into the text, uh, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever judged a book by its cover? And um, I'm not talking about the metaphor, so not like, you know, your sister's new boyfriend that, you know, you don't, you want to get to know him first or whatever. I'm not talking about that. Like a physical book, have you ever looked at a book based off the dust cover and made a judgment? Um, I have some books in my small library at home. I'm a book lover. I'm a reader. Um, and I have some books in there. Some of them, the dust cover, you know, that paper that they wrap around it, um, is the same as what's under the book. So it's kind of, you know, you're hopeful that it's going to be better, um, and it's just, the, it's just a copy. Some of them, the dust cover is much better than just a blank book underneath. And then some of them, you get rid of the dust cover, and you find some... Um, either cloth covered or maybe even like a leather book that's like um, looks much much better. Sometimes um, people select books for that reason, for the the external. So I've been in um, a number of situations, but in out in public, and you see a book on a shelf, and then you turn to the owner or the host, and you look like it, my eyes light up. I'm like, oh, you know, you read? Have you read the memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant? And they look at you and they say, oh, no, haha, I just like that book for its cover. <laughs> if that's one of your preferred books, that is really offensive, actually. <laughs> so that has, um, I've experienced that. But we're just talking about the, the outside of the book. Far more important to any book than the cover, the dust cover, or even what is actually how the, the book is held together is its actual content. That's what truly matters. So you're asking, maybe, um, what does that have to do with John chapter 7? That's a great question. If you're following along in the Abide series and you've read through John 7, you know that in verse 24, he ends today's section, Jesus ends it by saying, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to read John 7, 1 through 24 together. Um, I trust that you've been marinating in this text this week. You're coming here as a dampened sponge ready to hear from God's word. So let's read this together. 
John 7, 1 through 24. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Let's pray as we continue, Father. We commit this next 25 minutes or so to you as we marinate in your word. I pray that you would, um, your spirit would be alive and active and working in us as you have promised, that you would reveal the truth of this text to us, help us to respond in obedience to you in the unique ways in which you are shaping and sanctifying us, those of us who have put our faith in you. May you be glorified in this morning's service and in um, the continuing work that you are doing in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Before we get into um, the core of the text, there are two contextual notes that I would like to um, bring to our attention so we can have the right um, feel the right emotion, have the right context as we dig into this passage. The first one is a quick character preview. There are four characters in this um, section, four groups, that I just want to make sure we have on um, have definitions around. The first one is obviously Jesus. He is the Messiah who is accomplishing his mission to save the world. He is not threatened by possible failure, but Jesus is deeply concerned with God receiving the glory 
that is due him in Jesus's life and ministry. The second group is this, um, the first group that we're going to talk about, it's his brothers. These are Jesus's actual, his younger brothers, the sons of Mary and Joseph, um, who they give him some advice. Next, we have this group called the Jews that get, um, there's a couple references to them. These are Jewish leaders, um, probably Pharisees, but they are like the religious establishment of, of that day in Jerusalem. They've got some criticisms of Jesus and his qualifications, and Jesus has some responses to them. And then we have this other group called the crowd, who um, they have some feedback for Jesus as well. Who's seeking to kill you? We're going to get into that. But what distinguishes this group is these are Jewish um, people, but they are probably pilgrims from miles out, and they are coming to Jerusalem for this feast. And so they're not as up-to-date on the news of what's going on um, in this local area. So... These are pilgrims, non-locals. So the second piece of context, the Feast of Tabernacles, or um, if you're reading it in ESV or other translations, it might say the Feast of Booths. So what is this occasion? So to me, I think we should do something like this as a church. This is like a week-long camping trip. Some of you um, would disagree with that heartily. Some of you... um, some of you would never want to participate in that. So what is, um, you, know who, you know who you are. Um, <laughs> what is the Feast of Booths? This is a time where Jewish people looked back on the Exodus where they left, they departed out of Egypt, and then they were um, nomadic for a full generation. Moses delivered them out of Egypt where they had been living in slavery And then they moved slowly for 40 years. They wandered in the wilderness because of sin, and they weren't allowed to go into the promised land yet. Um, This was a required feast for all men, Deuteronomy 16. And all men were supposed to attend this feast and then bring with them tithes. Specific um, celebration context here for this road trip um, is important because it's on this feast, in the midst of this eight-day feast, it starts with a Sabbath, Sabbath, it ends with a Sabbath. Um, it's at the end of the year, so at the end of harvest, there's bountiful food, they're feasting for eight days, and they're looking back on this time of Exodus. So you can imagine the fathers, the leaders are telling, and they're sitting the kids down um, and telling them stories, they're regurgitating this story, there's oral traditions that are being conveyed. It's I think of this, it's like when Dustin comes up here on Christmas Eve for our Christmas Eve service, and he teaches the kids, um, he reads that candy cane story book that I forget because it's May, or it's almost May now, but then I'm, I remember it every year. Usually, I think the last two years, we've had Dustin read it, okay? It's something like that. So there's all these rituals going on. There's tithing. It's all pointing back to their history, So a quick review of this history, this Feast of Tabernacles, where they, the people come, they live in these tents, they basically camp for a full week. And as you think back, step back, we think back about um, all of biblical history. We think about this idea of the people being led in and out of places, in and out of blessing. Adam, the first man, led his descendants into sin, and, was, and led them, therefore, out of the garden, out of that blessing, that fellowship with God because of his sin. 
and then people were removed from the Garden of Eden. Joseph leads his family out of famine in the Promised Land and then into Egypt, which is initially a blessing, but then results in this extended generational curse where they are then brought into slavery under the Egyptian government, um, under Pharaoh. Moses leads God's people out of Egypt and toward the promised land, but then because of their sin, their faithlessness, 12 men went to spy on Canaan. 10 were bad and 2 were good. Do you remember that story? Because of their faithlessness, the story stalls in the wilderness for a whole generation before Joshua leads God's people into this promised land. So this is all, those movements are all this microcosm of what Jesus' ministry is doing. What is his mission? He is leading God's people back into not just the promised land. That's a shadow of what is, what is really happening Jesus leads God's people back into fellowship with him, back into the eternal Eden, into his kingdom. And that is where Jesus' message is, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. So it's with this backdrop of history at this Feast of Booths that we find Jesus here in John 7. Historically, there's some precedent in this feast. In um, Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra preaches to God's people, and a revival breaks out. It's at this same feast. This is a big deal, not something to be ignored. So let's begin. The brothers, John 7, these first nine verses. What does this mean? His brothers suggest that he ought to take this opportunity to expand his ministry. They don't even believe yet. They are unbelieving in his messiahship, but I don't think that they're um, antagonistic towards his ministry. I think that they just, they're seeing him do this thing. He's not, um, he's raised in this carpenter's family. And you can see his brothers, they want to be supportive, it sounds like. And, they're, and I just, I picture his brothers saying something in the, in the mode of like, Jesus, you know what you really need to do if you really want this thing to blow up um, if you really want this ministry to be successful, you should take advantage of this feast because everybody's going to be there. If you want to be known like you want to be known, you should go there. Speak openly. Really make a name for yourself. Scale this business up. They're giving him like advertising advice. And Jesus' response to them is, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. His brothers certainly should act and live with urgency since their time is present. We humans, mere humans, we are blinded by time. We're limited by that. Jesus is not like that. He has existed before his incarnation, before he came to earth. He pre-existed with God. He is co-eternal with the Father. He is not bound in the same way that we are. So, his concern is not that he's going to run out of time, right? Because he is the creator of time itself. His concern is that God will be adequately glorified and that he will not lose any of those for which he has come to save. How to illustrate this idea of time? I think for me, a helpful illustration 
has been that of a theater where Jesus is both the main character and the director. I think I've talked about this once before. Only the best actors attempt to be both the star of their movie as well as the director. His concern is, again, not that his mission will fail, but that this production will take glory away from the one who is singularly worthy of glory. And Jesus' ministry, his time on earth, is the climactic point of all of history. The viewers from every age, that includes you and me, our future generations, those who have gone before us, God's angels and his enemies, they're all watching this production unfold. They're seeing the script played out in front of us in a perfect yet gruesome manner. It is both tragic and beautiful. And this presentation of God's sovereignty with his goodness, his love, and his justice, it should cause everyone who reads the story or watches it, cause us to worship. Jesus' time is not yet, he says. He's not center stage yet. He's directing He's providing context by healing on Sabbath days. He's developing his character by being born into Bethlehem and then having to flee to Egypt as a child and then coming back and then telling his disciples that he would die and come back from the dead. He's setting the stage for his time, this climactic moment over Passover where he would atone for the sins of mankind, appease God's wrath and be lifted up on the cross and then draw all men to himself. And then he would defeat death in the resurrection, which we celebrated with our holiday a couple weeks ago. But that's not his time yet. That's not this feast. This is the Feast of the Tabernacles. So like a theater presentation, the timing has to be right. It's all about the timing. Characters need to be developed. Tensions need to be built. Where we go from sitting down If you ever have attended a theater or a movie, you sit down and you might be relaxed at the beginning, but then as the narrative moves forward and there's that tension drawn, you find yourself, you don't even remember doing it, you find yourself moving to the edge of your seat, leaning forward, because you know that the hero wins in almost all stories, but yet you're still wondering, does he really kill the dragon and get the girl? There's this tension that's being brought up. And Jesus says to his brothers, No, me going and scaling up my ministry at this feast, this weekend, that's not this script. You ought to play your part, brothers, because you are limited in that way, but I will play mine. So what what does this mean for us? This might be the primary thing that God has for some of us today. So now we're in this mindset of God's sovereignty over history, and then even his dealing with the smallest details, it's no coincidence, we know, that Jesus chooses to heal people even on the Sabbath. It's no coincidence that he offers water to those who are thirsty. We're gonna see that, verse 42. That was the first sermon I wrote, all right? It's no coincidence that he offers living water to those who are thirsty in the context of a feast that was celebrating when people were wandering around in the wilderness, for 40 years, when they needed water, and God did a miracle by providing water to them. You remember the story of Moses striking the rock 
and God takes care of his people. So what, is, what do all these details mean as these stories come into view and then out? As we remember scenes from earlier in the show and then we re-give our focus back to the current um, stage. I think it means that your life and the details of your life is not a coincidence. There is no detail of your life that's just happening. Joseph looks at his brothers after years, years after they've sold him into slavery, and what does he say? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So for us, faith in Jesus' timing is a balm to a tired and weary soul. We often want, this is our sinful nature, we want Jesus to do his good thing for us in our time, at our price, on our terms. That's what we want. But that would undermine the story of your life. See, God's story doesn't happen in fiction. It's not actually theater. That's actually maybe a really bad illustration because what God is doing is real. It's your actual life. The pain is real. The joy is real. It's not a shadow like up on a stage. This book isn't full of fictional stories about people who are just symbols. They are real people. Real people who experienced God working and doing these things in their life. So you might be tired today. You might be grieving the loss, the sickness, the burdens, the hurt and the pain of this world. Or you might be yearning for the blessings, your heart's desire. You're looking for something that um, you feel like God has not yet given you and might not ever give you. So whether you feel like you're living a life of Joseph or Job or Psalm 23, you can know that God is doing a good work in you and in your life because his timing is much better than ours. I'm gonna read Psalm 23 now. Psalm 23 from David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. And then Jesus echoes this with a affirmation, a promise at the end of his earthly ministry, at the end of Matthew 28. He says, after giving them the great commission, he says to his disciples, Behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. He is with us. He is in control over timing. He has it all planned out. And that, 
that church is a reason to worship. We could end the message there, but there's two more dialogues we have to get through in this text, and it actually just gets better. The second dialogue is with the Jews. They judge Jesus as having limited authority or theological understanding. In verses 10 through 13, there's this confusion about Jesus. Some people say he's a good man. Some people say um, he's deceiving people. He's confusing us. And you can feel this tension rising. Persecution or the opposition to Jesus' ministry is starting to ramp up. There's confusion and so much so that people aren't even allowed to have this open discussion because they're afraid of the Jews who they know want to kill him by now. The Jews hear Jesus' teaching and they question the root of his theological authority, his understanding. They don't argue with what he said as much as where did he learn that? Where did he get that? Because he didn't come up in our rabbinical, traditional rabbinical religious seminaries, right? They marveled. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? These leaders are really religious tyrants who won't permit discussion about Jesus. They're proponents of the confusion about him because they themselves are ignorant and confused. And Jesus responds in the context of confusion over his identity, his messiahship, as these Jewish leaders question him. And he responds in a perfect way. He doesn't say, now listen to me. I'm the king of the world and you're actually my servants. And he doesn't even argue their points when they say, this guy is uneducated and say, yes, I am. No, he says, my message is from God. And rather than defending his own identity, he actually goes on the offensive and he says, it's not really me who's at the issue here. It's you. I'm not invalid as a teacher. You, the people who are supposed to know the law, these leaders, you are invalid as learners. You don't truly know God. You don't even know the law. If you do know the law, you disobey it because you want to kill me. So Jesus' ministry, we see here, it wasn't connected to this idea of timing before. It wasn't this flash-in-the-pan event. Jesus' ministry is not a one-hit wonder that's going to kind of come up and then disappear. He was sent from God to testify to truth itself. And so then this third group of people, the crowd, they hear Jesus articulate this, and they say, no one's seeking to kill you. What are you talking about? It's the, it's the equivalent of, you're crazy. It's like, no one, what are you talking about? And then they go a step further and they say, actually, you must have a demon because this is so unexpected. And so some of the people have this perception, but we learn later in verse 25, all the local Jerusalem people say, hey, isn't this the guy that they're trying to kill? Like, why haven't they done it yet? Jesus continues with his affirmation of the lawfulness of his Sabbath healing, which a true learner would understand. A true student of the law would understand this, but he explains it to them. Nothing is coincidental, including, you know, talking about circumcision when all the kids are here. Um, so the context, he talks about this idea of circumcision. 
It was required on the eighth day in the Old Testament law. There's like medical reasons for that. We're not going to get into that, but it's, um, there's some significance to that, why God did that for the health of the baby. And even if that eighth day fell on the Sabbath, this little boy would still have to be circumcised. And Jesus explains to the crowd that his healing of a man on the Sabbath was not just permissible, but it was actually it was like a requirement. If you're permitted or even commanded to help this little boy with the, with the ritual of circumcision, even on the Sabbath, how much more ought Jesus to make a whole body whole on the Sabbath? Verse 23, if on a Sabbath, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may, be, may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath... I made a man's whole body well. Jesus' point is that the leaders who seek him, rather than rejoicing that the Messiah is here and saying this is really the thing, heaven is coming down to earth, instead seek to kill him because he threatens their power. In reality, he's upholding the law by not simply doing the small act of circumcision, but doing a greater act of healing this entire man. That's a reference back to the healing that Jesus did in John 5. Jesus ends with an exhortation to those present. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So that rings a bell. Like we have, that's that's not the first time we've heard that. There's a story, it's like itching, This has come up before. It's in 1 Samuel 16. Samuel is going out to anoint the future king of Israel. And the Lord said to Samuel, and he's talking about um, Saul, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So this is not a new teaching. True learners, true students of the Old Testament, students of God's word, would know that this is how God works. God looks at a man's heart. He does not look on the external appearances. And we saw this played out in the selection of David, one of, if not um, Israel's greatest kings up to this point. So they ought to know better. And Jesus exhorts these leaders, the crowd, the locals, he says, don't judge on appearances. Judge on the heart. So what are we supposed to do with this as we apply this? And I think um, the advent of social media in our culture has actually started to prepare us for this. We, um, we are really accustomed to seeing people seeing the highlight reel on Instagram and Facebook, that's normal for us. Nobody, very few people, I shouldn't say nobody, very few people, like, take a picture of, um, of their living room when it's all dirty or their bed when it's unmade, okay? People don't do that on Instagram. Instagram is the highlight reel. We post pictures where we're just like the happy family on vacation and we do all these fun things and the fun activities and the the food after it's 
curated and presented well. That's like the highlight reel. No surprises here. That's not a new thing for us. As we, um, I think some of that comes out of like doing life in redemption group. You know each other. We do ministry here in small groups because that's where I can know you, but I can also be known by you. There's health in that. We're a big proponent of that. If you're not in a small group, if you haven't found a redemption group, find one. We will be blessed by that. There will be accountability, but there will also be, um, which is a blessing, there will also be encouragement. Do that. But I don't think that this is what is the main thrust of this text here today. I don't think that Jesus' exhortation to not judge on appearances is horizontal. It's not about how we see, it's not primarily about how we see each other. There's part of that there. But his thrust here is about how we see God. Don't judge the Messiah and what he is doing and saying, his timing, his authority. Don't judge that based off of the superficial, just off of the outside. He says, judge with right judgment. So let me ask us a couple questions as we wrap up. Do you, do you trust that Jesus is doing this perfect work of leading his people back into perfect fellowship with God? Or, based off of appearances, do you think that God's timing in my life, do I think that God's timing in my life is not really good, it's not best. Blinded by time, we are often tempted to question the narrative that God has for our lives. But Jesus says, judge with right judgment. I just, I, I park there and I think like, if, if it was all about hurrying this thing up, Adam and Eve's first son could have been the Messiah who immediately was born killed the snake, and then perfected everything. He could have done that. Instead, he's doing something much better by slowly bringing about this restoration of the world over the course of history. Based off of appearances, do you ever think that God's commands are overbearing or unnecessary? His distinct roles that he's laid out for men and women this thing around circumcision. Maybe God, um, maybe God isn't really doing what's best for me in these commands. But Jesus says, judge with right judgment. Like all of God's commands, obedience is for our good. Or, one more question. Based off of appearances, do you often or ever think that God doesn't care about you? Do you catch yourself disregarding Psalm 23? See, we have this book with countless stories of individuals from Joseph to Job to Moses to David showing over and over and over that God cares about his people, that his timing is perfect, and we would not know the joy of fellowship with him if we did not know the burden and the grief of sin. So we must be learners 
true learners of truth and not judges, judges of appearance. If we are to be God's people, like we talked about in the month of March, if we are to be God's people, under God's rule, in God's presence, and be led by his spirit, and then go out and do the work that he's called us to do, we must be true learners and judge with right judgment. Our view of God remains the most important thing about us. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, we worship you as the king. You are worthy of all our worship, all of our devotion. As we have seen this morning, I pray that you would bring our minds, our thinking into obedience to you. Our focus has not been on um, external actions as much as how we choose to believe and how we choose to see you in your sovereignty over time, the goodness of your commands, and your authentic and eternal love and care for your people. And I pray that you would convict us of that. Bring us into obedience to you. Give us a heart of true learners. We love you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.